Good morning. Welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic Wednesday show planned for you today. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. You're looking extra collegiate today. Oh, thank you. My Easter best. <laughs> I love it. You look, I'm getting like 90s vibes, sort well, of, you know, which I'm, is a good a compliment. I'm trying to tap course. into the zennial energy as an elder millennial trying to stay current. I see. I see. <laughs> All right. What are we talking about today? Well, the White House says the flying object shot down by U.S. military jets over the past week are most likely balloons. However, a senior administration official continues to shed doubt about the U.S. and Canada and whether or not they will be able to positively identify the aerial phenomenon via rec uh, recovered debris, blaming weather conditions. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau suggested yesterday that the cluster of objects shot down across U.S. and Canadian airspace may be linked, telling reporters, quote, obviously there is some sort of pattern there. <laughs> Well, obviously, I mean, what? I mean, the pattern might be, and I was listening to some reporting, I think maybe at the New York Times this morning, asking whether or not part of the issue is that after you saw the first unidentified flying object, the United States basically fine-tuned its radar such That's that it's more expansive. So the pattern is they're looking harder. Right. <laughs> they're looking harder and at smaller things that ordinarily would have gone under the, the proverbial literal Which radar. Which is a serial issue for, uh, for for journalists struggle with this. They're like, oh, there's more of X phenomenon. And if you look, well, X phenomenon is being counted and cataloged much more expertly than it was last year, so it looks like it's getting worse or more prevalent when really we're just paying more attention to it. This is true of so many things. I, I've ranted about how this is true of hate crime reporting, mm. when the, all the charts that I was, oh, there's more hate crimes this year. Well, that agency didn't report any data on hate crimes last year, so of course there are more. There appears to be more yeah. this year. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's completely fair. It, you know, it is not to say that there isn't necessarily a there there in either circumstance, but the conjecture and the whole realm of, of, of reporting about this particular issue has been really extraordinary. I mean, FAIR did a great article a few days ago talking about how the whole spy balloon discourse is such a boon for China hawks. There has been right. so much description of what these things are, that, uh, to calling them immediately ch Chinese spy balloons without any attribution, um, it's just kind of breathless conversation about how they are both a threat and why we need to boost our, you know, military funding, et cetera, against China. Without any real explanation uh, of what they're actually doing. They don't even know what they are. Yeah. You know, they, they we, we, as we just explained, they're shooting them down in a way that makes it very difficult for them to uh, uncover debris. It's not clear whether or not at least some of these things are just, you know, science projects gone astray that are being knocked out of the sky with extremely expensive equipment at the taxpayers, <laughs> on like a taxpayer's dime. But so much of the media coverage has run with the explanations that have been offered forth by either unnamed sources or military-aligned sources that have every interest in using these kinds of moments right. as an excuse to gin up uh, antagonism with China. And the, the other things being shot down are not necessarily of Chinese origin at all. Right. They could be, it, it, it is easy to craft this kind of floating in the sky thing. This could be like, these are homemade weather balloons yeah. or like you said, science experiments being shot down at tremendous cost mm -hmm. to ultimately the U.S. taxpayer. So I think there is a little bit of alarmism on this going on. At this point, honestly. Yeah, and, and look, it is a it is a perfect story because they can simultaneously say this isn't a real, really significant threat. You know, don't worry, this isn't something you need to do duck and cover drills over. At the same time, that it can be used to justify spending increases and dominate the news cycle when other things that are 
more painful for the government to explain, like these derailments, which, as I talk about on my radar, I'll talk about on my radar later today, have so much to do with regulatory choices and lobbying efforts by the railroad industry that have directly led to the disaster that is unfolding in East Palatine. Well, as Americans' unanswered questions over the origins of the flying objects continue to mount, the Biden administration is convening a team expected to study airborne objects and the potential security and safety risks that they pose. The new group would be a collaboration between the Pentagon, the Federal Aviation Administration, the Department of Homeland Security, and other government agencies. Those do such a good job of investigating themselves and other phenomena. Meanwhile, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre is facing mockery over comments she made Made at yesterday's briefing. Let's watch. Where the president's communications are concerned, and I'm asking you because you work on his communications team, and you're a professional communicator, um, there is obviously a variety of settings the president can employ. Set pieces, impromptu remarks, teleprompter, no teleprompter, etc., etc. Is it the view of the president's communications team that he is equally adept in all settings in terms of communications, or are there some that played a greater strength somewhere he probably isn't as strong, et cetera. I will tell you this. The president is the best communicator that we have in the White House. <laughs> I mean, that might be true. I guess so. I, I mean, honestly, I, I will say, I'll give, I'll, give, I'll give Joe Biden this. I mean, look at the performance that he had uh, during the State of the Union just a week or so ago. You know, there was this unscripted moment, to the extent that the, the reporter is trying to get her to admit that he's not as good off teleprompter. We actually saw the opposite was true. When he was faced with the kind of heckling and jeering from the crowd over his claim that some Republicans have gone after Social Security and Medicare and tried to defund those programs, you know, he said, look, if you're telling me that that's not true, and we all agree in this room that we have to protect Social Security and Medicare, great, let's stand up and clap for Social Security and Medicare, and basically flipped the script and forced the whole bipartisan Congress to agree with the idea that we're going to protect these programs. So he has the ability to be very good off script. He also has the ability to go on a lark off script and start talking about how black kids at the swimming pool in his youth like to pet his blonde leg hairs, and that's a whole other story. But, you know, I, I don't know exactly. <laughs> that, that's a real one. Google it. Uh, all right. You know, so, I, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly who's in the communications team. There might be a better communicator here and there. But, I, you know, it's not completely unreasonable to point out that Biden is where he is, I think, for a reason. And some of that, some of that reason is his communication skills. Like Biden be his own press secretary. There's an argument for that as well. The communications on the the balloon discourse mm -hmm. uh, from the White House, the government at large, have not been great. Mm -hmm. I assume they know exactly what this thing is, mm -hmm. and they're just not saying because they hate transparency. And that's not even really on Biden specifically. It's just the nature of, again, these so agencies were always discussing the the, uh, the the State Department, the FBI, the CIA, all these places. They don't. They just don't want to share the information they have. Internally, think, I think they know exactly. You what's don't going think on. it's true that you know what one went down in a Great Lake. You know, there's yeah. they keep going down in bodies of water. Well, they say they're shooting them down over bodies of water so that there's no concern that they hurt someone or hit a car or a building or something, which may have some validity, but also they don't want you to pick up the pieces. Right. I think, yeah. I mean, that's just conjecture, but that seems to me more likely. But you don't think that that's the real reason that we haven't heard more yeah, about what these both. things are? I think it's both. I, I think they know, I think they know what they are, though. 
Probably we have our own, and <laughs> probably floating over China said, well, China said we violated their airspace, doing exactly. exactly the same thing. Exactly. And earlier this month, um, when the story first emerged, a Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs website said that the balloon was of a civilian nature, used for scientific research. So even if they are Chinese balloons, right. you know, to create assault, all of this, but it's not clear that they're necessarily surveillance balloons. But again, that's part of the issue. Immediately, the reporting was Chinese surveillance balloons. Yeah. Without attribution and without substantiation. I mean, they shouldn't be doing that, but... And, and so, it, I mean, it's led someone, some people to Just, ask the question, They, they, they didn't why? decide oh, well, how, how fun it would be to balloon across the United <laughs> States. <laughs> well, I mean, well, you're saying that you, you, you are skeptical of the idea that it could be just a stray science balloon? Yes. I, I mean, know. I don't, I, I, I think the smart thing is to not trust the U.S. government or the Chinese government. It's not like... I don't distrust the U.S. government and trust the Chinese government, well, or no. distrust the Chinese government and trust the U.S. government. I distrust them both. No, but I think I think it's possible. I think that both explanations are possible. I think it's it, it might be that it's a that there are errant science balloons. I, I, guess I think it it's, might be. I, it's I think possible. It's, it's an American science balloon. It's possible that it's a Chinese science balloon. It's possible it's a Chinese surveillance balloon. It's possible that it's none of those things. I think it probably has some nefarious purpose, and we know exactly what that is because we do it as well. <laughs> that sounds. I mean, me. I mean, maybe, but I mean, you you believe that at the same time that you believe that we also are just picking up more things because of the switch to the yes. radar, and the you think all of those things. things are also no, nefarious. Those things, I think those things are just okay. People's balloons. Okay. Well, again, I, I think it's worth asking what stories aren't being covered uh, and who is benefiting from the kind of wall-to-wall -wall balloon coverage at, at a time when I'm sorry, it's not just. The, the Ohio plane uh, train derailment. There's a second train derailment, and there are ongoing water crises all over the country, even absent the chemical spill that's, that's happened as a consequence of these trains. So, you know, I think that when Media Matters and FAIR and organizations like this do reporting about the imbalances in the news cycle, it's worth noting what it isn't being talked about at the same time as we notice. Oh, no, no disagreement on that. The way the balloon story just totally consumed the media for days uh, was really <laughs> was something to behold. There are other things definitely to cover, and we're going to be covering some of those on the show today. So stay tuned for that, and Brianna's Radar will be up next. on your radar today? Well, Robbie, a decade ago, corporate lobbyists convinced the federal agency that handles rail safety to exclude hazardous compounds from its more stringent safety requirements. And last week, a 150-car train carrying flammable toxic chemicals derailed in Palestine, Ohio, creating a toxic air event that spit a plume of noxious gas 3,000 feet in the air. There's a clear connection between these events, but according to Media Matters, only 3% of coverage about the Ohio rail disaster discussed the rail industry's hand in the crisis. Major cable networks aired nearly three hours of coverage across 92 segments, according to Media Matters, with Fox News and MSNBC accounting for nearly 34% of coverage. And yet these journalists apparently had little curiosity about why incidents like these happened. Lucky for you, I'm a more curious type of gal. As The Lever has reported, a series of train derailments beginning about 10 years ago made people want to strengthen safety regulations. But Americans who were concerned about the dozens of deaths that accrued from these accidents were no match for railroad industry lobbyists. Norfolk Southern, the corporation behind the Ohio train derailment, 
ignored warnings that understaffing was exacerbating safety risks, at the same time that it paid millions to executives and spent billions on stock buybacks. They even shot down their own shareholders, who attempted to push through an initiative that could have required executives to assess, review, and mitigate risks of hazardous material transportation. Specifically, after a 2012 derailment in New Jersey that involved the same toxic chemical at issue in Ohio, the Obama administration proposed new safety regulations, but once again, corporate power won out, and the regulations that went into effect were narrowly tailored to focused on crude oil, excluding the types of chemicals involved in both the 2012 crash and the one in East Palestine. Cut forward to 2017, and the rail industry lobbyists managed to successfully get Senate Republicans to rescind part of a rule designed to improve braking systems. You see, regulators had wanted rail cars that carried hazardous, flammable materials to use an electric braking system that can stop trains faster than the typical air brakes. But Norfolk Southern's lobbying group argued that doing so would, quote, impose tremendous costs without providing offsetting safety benefits. Hmm. One former senior official at the Federal Railroad Administration told the lever that the electronic brake system really would have made all the difference. Quote, would ECP brakes have reduced the severity of this accident? Yes, said Stephen Dittmeyer. But rail companies don't want to spend the money. The Federal Railroad Administration estimated the brake requirement will cost about half a billion dollars. The 2017 profits, by the way, were over $10.5 billion, but hey, I guess the $6 million they spent on GOP donations in 2017 was a cheaper bet than making our railways safer. Now that Biden's off the hook, he hasn't tried to reinstate the break rule, despite being in office for two years with House and Senate majorities. And at what cost? Five tank cars that derailed contained vinyl chloride, which vaporizes into phosgene when burned. Now, this is the same chemical that killed thousands of soldiers during the First World War. After the accident on February 3rd, thousands of residents on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border were ordered to evacuate. The scene was so cinematic, it was oddly evocative of a 2022 Don DeLillo adaptation, White Noise, in which a toxic air event in the Midwest forces the film's central family to evacuate. Even more eerie, the film was shot in East Palestine, and at least one of the men that had to evacuate was actually an extra in the movie. About 20 of the 150 rail cars were carrying hazardous toxins that are known carcinogens. And the EPA has reported that they are known to have been and continue to be released into the air, earth, and surface water. The EPA screened the air inside of 290 homes as of February 13th and said it didn't, had not found vinyl chloride or hydrogen chloride, which can both cause life-threatening respiratory problems. But thousands of fish and frogs were found dead in creeks around Columbiana County, up to 7.5 miles away. While evacuated residents were told it was safe to go home just days after the incident, some are skeptical, remembering that after 9-11, EPA head Christine Todd Whitman told New Yorkers that the air was safe, putting first responders in particular at risk. More than 37,000 exposed at ground zero since became sick, many with cancer or chronic respiratory disease. More than 1,100 have died. Meanwhile, a local reporter attempting to cover the crash was arrested last week after police claimed he interrupted the governor at a press conference about the crash. Get this. <laughs> what happened was that because the press conference was delayed, it started at the same time the reporter, Evan Lambert, was scheduled to do a live shot. 
And because the live shot was allegedly disruptive to the press conference, he was arrested and charged with disorderly conduct and criminal trespassing. Big win for press freedom. Let's take a look at this arrest. For the record, his colleague at News Nation, Mike Vicara, who joined us here on Rising yesterday to discuss the derailment, told the New York Times that the live shot was conducted quietly and away from the podium where the governor was set to speak. He also clarified that Lambert wrapped his live shot as soon as he realized the governor was speaking because he also wanted to hear what public officials had to say. No matter, apparently, we live in a country where we throw reporters in jail at the slightest provocation and ask questions later. Now, Biden also has abandoned labor here. With the jailing of reporters and the success of corporate lobbying efforts, it's easy to forget that this is also fundamentally a labor story. Just two months ago, Joe Biden stepped in to stop a rail strike that rail workers hoped might bring them a single, solitary sick day. Over the same time period during which the railroad industry was fighting safety measures, they were also slashing their workforce by nearly 30 percent and embracing a scheduling strategy known as precision scheduled railroading. Now, if you remember from our rail strike coverage, the scheduling strategy makes it very difficult for rail workers to be able to take any, any time off, but it also leads to an increase in accidents. Workers are sick, they're tired, and trains that are nearly two miles long are being staffed and checked for issues by just two rail workers. The train that crashed had a three-man crew, an engineer, a conductor, and a conductor trainee. Cuts to staff and tight timing means cutbacks on car inspections, which may have led to the axle failure and need to rely on emergency brakes in Ohio. Again, not the new and efficient electric brakes, but the old air brake system. Thanks, again, lobbyists. While the new brake system activates on all the cars at once, the problem with the old brake system is that it operates kind of like a slinky sequentially down the line, and it causes the train to jackknife and derail when the brakes are activated suddenly. Candace Wagner, a freight rail conductor, member of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen Union based in Pittsburgh, and 2022 Socialist Workers Party candidate for governor of Pennsylvania, said, quote, the rail bosses, backed by the federal government, refused to address any safety or other substantive issues raised by rail workers through our unions in the recent negotiations. And their lust for profits, the railroad bosses are running increasingly long, heavy trains and pushing on rail workers, smaller crews, arbitrary schedules, longer shifts and more work than ever before. Massive cuts have been made in the operating crafts, car inspectors, mechanical and maintenance of, way, of workforces. All this leads to derailments like this. Honestly, what else is there to say? Look, stuff like this happens every day. Corporations like Norfolk Rail routinely externalize the risks of operating their dangerous businesses, from which they profit in the billions, onto the public. If they were ever made to pay for the messes they cause, maybe they'd invest in safety. Maybe it would be cheaper just to pay their workers and make sure that they were well-rested and able to do their jobs. They drive trains slower and jump at the opportunity to install safer brakes. But these companies almost never have to pay, at least as not, not as much as they actually owe. Courts routinely limit judgments decided by juries, and sometimes companies liquidate, get sold off, and then the new ownership simply claims the old company doesn't exist anymore, so they're not liable. No one is, even though they hold all of the assets and profits of the former company. 
After Texaco come Chevron was sued for dumping 18.5 billion gallons of toxic water in the Amazon, one of the world's greatest natural disasters. Lawyer Stephen Donziger helped lead a successful lawsuit against the company, securing $18 billion in damages. But Chevron has never paid a dime. It has spent $400 million in legal fees per year to fight the judgment, however. They also successfully got Donziger locked up on house arrest for 900 days, the longest misdemeanor charge ever recorded. And you want to guess how much they've spent cleaning up the rainforest? Well, just one-tenth of one year's legal fees. As long as it costs less for companies to have accidents and hurt the public than it does for them to invest in safety measures, they will continue to externalize the costs onto the vulnerable public. This is why it is in the public's interest for them to have to pay for the damages they cause. History shows that they tend to get away with murder, sometimes literally. The New Jersey crash from 2012, well, 23,000 gallons of vinyl chloride were released. But Conrail settled with affected town, town members for between $500 and $2,500 in exchange for an agreement not to sue. Details of the settlement were sealed by the courts. It was a working class community that was affected, just like in Ohio. And some local lawyers observed that the process of securing individual settlements was exploitative. I sincerely hope that no health issues emerge later in life for the people who signed their rights away. But if they do, we know it won't be enough. 23,000 gallons of vinyl chloride were spilled in the 2012 crash. That's a little under 200,000 pounds. Nearly 1 million pounds were on the East Palestine train. Low levels of the compound have already been found in the Ohio River, which feeds into the Mississippi, America's second largest river. How much will be enough to make the affected whole? How many are ultimately going to be affected? How will the affected ever be able to prove that this spill caused their cancer? How likely is it that Norfolk Southern will be liable? Who will pay the legal bills for all the affected low-income people involved? How much will it take to make corporations pick up the costs of their dangerous business practices? So many Americans saw the movie Aaron Brockovich so many years ago, and, and from that and other films and maybe personal experience, understand how difficult it is in the legal context to prove causation. And that is pre precisely why so many companies that deal with toxic materials are able to get away with causing great untold harms. Because at the end of the day, the legal system, for reasons, you know, not, not illegitimate reasons, really want to make sure that people aren't on the hook for things that they didn't do. At the same time, the nature of toxic exposure, the fact that it happens, the results of it are seen so many years later, the fact that we're all exposed to so many things, it's very hard to pin any one incident to any one outcome. And what that, that means at the end of the day is that corporations are off the hook and they have no incentive to ever really curb their dangerous behavior. Well, especially if uh, liability is artificially lowered by some kind of legal Statu uh, standard or statute. Um, I, I was very influenced by hearing a, a, a talk from a law professor I really like uh, years ago about the um, the Deepwater Horizon mm -hmm. oil spill, where he said, like, well, why do they do this very risky, very dangerous drilling here? It's like, well, they're they're legally prohibited from doing it in many other places, and here their liability is capped. Mm -hmm. So you you essentially incentivize risky behavior yeah. if you if you do that. So something, I don't know enough about the specific situation, yeah. but something similar might be going on here. Also, I mean, rail is a very um, 
cronyist kind mm -hmm. of. I, I think this railroad is is a duopoly essentially mm -hmm. for the services it uh, provides. So yeah, there's a lot uh, to scrutinize here from uh, from many perspectives. I think. Yeah, what's interesting, people should definitely go to the lever and read the entirety of the reporting that was over there. But one of the things that I didn't include in the radar was that the rail company at one point was one of the biggest advocates for adopting the new electric brake system. And they were kind of touting that, oh, we're the innovators here, you should use our rail, this is a great system. But for whatever reason, maybe they realized the cost of implementation just weren't worth it. They pivoted hard and spent so much money, and there's details about which congressmen take, took the most money from the railroad company, and of course, they're the ones that are leading the charge against implement, implementing these kind of safety regulations. It's, it's a, a disaster that everyone could have seen coming from a mile away. And so many rail workers sounded the alarm. And it was part of the negotiations that were happening with the strike uh, discourse at the end of last year. And now we're reaping, um, the, the, not the benefits, but we're, we're living with the consequences of inaction. And I think Biden and Buttigieg are facing some real legitimate criticism um, for not doing more. I'm about halfway through that white noise movie. I remember reading, I read the book in college. It mm -hmm. was actually assigned to me in a literature class. I didn't really care for the book. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm really caring for the movie. Uh, although isn't the... I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I mostly remember the book. Is the lesson we're supposed to take away, and the connection is crazy. It was filmed yes. there, near there, and yes. there are people who are in the movie experiencing it's the same thing. Wild. Sounds like, actually sounds like the kind of satire that the book itself is trying to capture. <laughs> yeah. I think it's ultimately right about people's irrational fears of death or something, because in the book it's not actually a, a harmful incident, but it makes them... Crazy. Oh, I, right? I, I only saw the movie. I didn't. I haven't read the book. I don't know. Um, the book and the movie, it seemed like it was legitimately toxic, but it was, it was treated. But they're toxic people anyway, or something. I don't know. I didn't care for the movie. I don't know that I got the movie to be honest. Right. I watched it for Adam Driver reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll definitely have to keep following the story because yes. the stuff isn't going anywhere. More rising right after this. Interest in what caused last year's explosion of the Nord Stream pipelines has been sparked this week with an investigative journalist claiming that the Biden administration has ordered the attacks. The White House strongly denounced any notion that it was involved, but comments President Biden made a year ago do little to dispel that notion. Let's watch. If Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again, then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. Over the weekend, journalist Seymour Hirsch, who first reported on the possible sabotage, doubled down on his allegation and told RT World News that story confirming the CIA is behind the blast wasn't hard to find. Journalist Glenn Greenwald also called out the administration and its allies in the West for propagating the narrative that Russia was responsible, tweeting, though the West security state knows they can get the corporate media to say anything they tell them to say, even they must sometimes marvel at how easy it is. I bet anything they cackle as they recall, can you believe we got them to say Russia blew up its own pipeline? Mm. No. So, so the, yeah. the statements by Biden and another uh, government official, uh, Victoria Newland, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, that indicating that America would do something mm -hmm. to sabotage and stop Nord Stream is, I, I think, what makes it very hard to dismiss mm -hmm. the claim that in Seymour Hersh's reporting that it was the U.S. Um, 
Corinne Jean-Pierre said Biden is the best communicator we have. He just tells it like it is. Now, I know that's not actually true and that Biden sometimes gets his words confused, so I'm not actually clear on what he meant when he said that. Uh, if it was a threat that we were going to blow it up, then yes. I, so I, I don't I, I, I think it is perfectly plausible that it was U.S. action. And, and I'm. I'm very upset by that. So I, Mike Lee, I think, had a good statement on this the other day. Senator Mike Lee, Republican senator, mm -hmm. said, I'm troubled that I can't immediately rule out the suggestion that the U.S. blew up Nord Stream. I checked with a bunch of Senate colleagues. Among those I've asked, none were ever briefed on this. If it turns out to be true, we've got a huge problem. And, and that's the approach I agree with here. It, it was, if it was the U.S., it was totally, totally wrong, insane and scandalous and, I would hope, illegal and unconstitutional for them to do this without any congressional oversight whatsoever. Uh, now, that said, I cannot just wholly accept this report from Seymour Hersh released on Substack based on what sounds like a single anonymous source with no additional documentation or verification that was, I, I don't know that this story was edited or checked by anyone else. Like I can't, that's not, that can never be the last word for me on the subject. I'm sorry. I just sure, can't. but we're, we're kind of jumping from the first suspicion to the last word here. Mm -hmm. I mean, the part of the problem is that the journalists, the, the institution of journalism seemed to have very little interest in investigating what was a very likely implausible cause of the explosion. Not that they, you know, didn't, you know, neglected to discover the, the, the core truth here and that they maybe didn't find the same source that Seymour Hirsch found or all, anything like that. But the, the argument that Hirsch is making in the RT piece is that this wasn't a difficult story to find. If anybody wanted to find this story, they could have. But how often have you heard journalists asking Queen Jean-Pierre or any of the White House press secretaries about accusations that the U.S. blew up the pipeline? and asked a series of follow-up questions about that uh, about the circumstances of the explosion that, frankly, point to U.S. involvement, including the training exercises that were happening nearby, including the statements that were made by Joe Biden that we ha just heard. Little to none. I, I don't remember any questions. Maybe some questions were asked. But obviously, we've seen back and forth about the word woke and every other kind of thing, and the same energy has not been brought to that. How often, how quickly—this is, and this is Glenn Greenwald's point—how quickly did the mainstream media pick up the narrative that absolutely Russia did it? If they had brought the same skepticism and, and mm -hmm. patience that you're bringing to the idea that maybe American did it to the idea that Russia did it, I think we would have had a m much more robust conversation. But instead, there seemed to be— a glomming on to what may be State Department talking points that are very convenient. Republicans are are having these hearings now that they're in control of the House on the Twitter files, uh, Hunter Biden's laptop, all of these kinds of things. Great. Perhaps there's also an interest in investigating whether or not the CIA blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. That's something there's, I think that's also well, one hundred percent. There absolutely should be. Honestly, it would not surprise me if there is more appetite for investigating that kind of thing among Republicans I'm than among Democrats. I'm sure that's true, but are they going to do it? Indictment. No. Is there enough, enough to do it? They should do it for sure. They should do it. Uh, and, and it is telling that the kind of reporting that Seymour Hersh is doing used to, uh, that that calls into question dominant um, uh, narratives about American power and how American military might is used. Those used to be questions that you asked from within inside The New York Times or mm -hmm. from within inside The Washington Post. He was a journalist who was affiliated with, I believe, The New York Times yeah, and, and has written pieces for other prestigious mm -hmm. um, uh, mainstream liberal progressive outlets. Mm -hmm. 
Now he has to operate outside that system mm -hmm. because that system is very captured, I'm sorry to say, by State Department, FBI, CIA in interests people formally representing those interests, you know, the, re the revolving door between the deep state and the news media is alarming. The progressive news media, the yeah. mainstream news media yeah. is alarming. So you can't, so I absolutely understand why people can't trust them to tell those stories. I think it's shocking and outrageous and sad that you don't have you know, reporters at those institutions demanding answers yeah. from government officials on who actually blew up Nord Stream. What evidence is there? Um, yeah, like, I, I understand not wanting to accept, of course, Seymour Hersh's, uh, you know, undisclosed source, anonymous source, uncritically. Don't accept mm -hmm. anything in the world uncritically. We all have to use our, our, mm -hmm. our analytical faculties everywhere. However, it seems like a lot of corporate journalists are happy to accept an unnamed source or a named State Department Absolute. source when it's they someone— They love unnamed sources. When, when, when it, especially when it's someone saying, oh, the Hunter Biden laptop is probably a fake. Yeah. You know, like, though, there was no— Or was someone bad-mouthing <laughs> Trump in his, sure. you know— There's no skepticism about any of that. P-tape, oh, unnamed, yeah. unnamed, unnamed source. None of, this, none of this criticism of unnamed sources except when it points in the direction of— bad behavior by the American government. Public editors, uh, someone is the public editor of the Washington Post or the New York Times, and she's jumped a couple times. I can't think of who I'm talking about. Has done good writing on how the standards for whether you would accept mm. reporting from an unnamed source has have just totally collapsed, or actually collapsed during the Trump years, mm -hmm. because there were so many people who want you know who worked in the Trump administration who wanted to gossip about how zany Trump is sure. and be quoted anonymously, and and reporters realized that was catnip for their you know resistance loving mm. audiences. They just wanted to hear people in you know the whole I am part of the resistance inside sure. the Trump administration, that whole kind of thing. They just took that ball and ran with it. it, it really, again, harming and degrading the standard. Yeah. Like, if you have something, because everyone will like, will, like, complain about their boss or their workplace, sure. like, you know, off the record quietly. You're not going to, you know, say exactly who this is, right? So that's not... That's not really news or novel, and, and it, sure. it very much got abused. And, and if anything, <laughs> the idea that Seymour Hersh knows someone in the CIA who was privy to what the CIA was doing, mm -hmm. that positioning certainly is it's understandable why that person doesn't want to be named. That is a career-ending move. Sure. They are, I'm sure, they have security clearance and all these other kind of things that would really cause them to potentially have violated laws in talking to this reporter. Like, that is... That is, I mean, there's a rationale there that's very understandable for why that source in particular is unnamed. Also, you're going to continue to get information from the source. I mean, that that is a much more understandable yeah. choice than as you're talking about these kind of gossipy inside the Trump White House stories. Which I get, but I don't understand. You know, this was just released on his Substack, so I don't I, I don't know what the process here did. An editor vet it. You know, I, I might have I might do a story, not, not one of, usually of this. You know, global significance, but uh, I might have a source that I'm quoting anonymously. But at least I'm, I'm going to tell you know an editor. Well, this is who it is. It's well, not going is... in the story, but so they can say, "Oh, that sounds good," and they can say, "Wait, wait a minute, who?" So, and there's there's also no, or I'm looking for documentation. I want you know, right? I mean, it's, I it's want tough. emails from. We've talked about this with the Twitter files. There have been people who yeah. are skeptical of that reporting because the journalists involved are largely independent, unaffiliated with any mainstream. Yeah. You know, official media. But they've got screenshots of emails. They have documents they're releasing. So I don't have to. I mean, that, I mean, you're, you've I, raised valid but questions. I'm not, about I'm not, it. I'm not I, criticizing Twitter. I'm just saying that there are people who raise the same concerns. Like, yeah. what happens when you don't have editorial standards? Yeah. Greenwald has been accused. So many people have been accused yeah. of this. And, you know, 
I, I don't know. I'm not saying that. I think that there are reasons that journalists, journalistic institutions have set themselves up the way they are. I think that certain kind of guardrails are yeah. important and good for journalists to have. At the same time, I also am not willing to write off the Twitter files reporting or write yeah. off Glenn Greenwald, write off Matt Taibbi or anybody else simply because they're not ensconced in, but, but in I think institutions. What, well, same, obviously. I, I love yeah. what they're doing for the Twitter files, but they're providing documents. And I think that is a, a very key difference. I can actually see, so I can see emails yeah. that I can read for myself well, yes, that are clearly... But also, yes, and I mean, there's the documents, which I think why I have... Yeah repeatedly said that there's so much value to the Twitter files reporting. And there's also the kind of claims and narrative structuring that has not been really close, you know, closely tied to documentary evidence. Like the overwhelming thrust of the disclosures is that the, there is a left, a right, an anti, an anti-right bias, which is only provable if you have the totality of the documents or at least more than we've been exposed to, as evidenced by some of the um, some of what came out with the Chrissy Teigen of it all in the in the hearings last week. So yeah, yes and no. I'm saying I understand your skeptical skepticism and hesitation to really jump fully into the Seymour Hersh's explanation. But the real question is, why don't we have more than Seymour Hersh who are asking these kinds of Absolutely. hard questions? Absolutely, people should get on it. <laughs> we will have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Senator Dianne Feinstein will retire from Congress when her term is up in 2024. After three decades, the California Democrat made the announcement yesterday. There appeared to be some confusion surrounding her retirement, however. Specifically, Feinstein herself seemed unaware that the statement announcing it, that she would not seek re-election, had already been released. Here's the audio, which is very confusing. Listen for yourself. Re-election. Well, I haven't made that decision. I haven't released anything. It will be my plan. You put out the statement? I didn't know they put it out. Um, so it is what it is. I think the time has come. I have a whole other year. Uh, I have things that are underway. I expect to achieve them. I hope. And so we'll see. Senator, you. when did you make your decision? I know you said it was going to take you some time. Senator, we need to catch the train. Yeah. Well, my husband has died, and that affected the decision. Nope. But I think Should you make time. it this week? It's, a, it, it's not the end of next year. So I think she had some confusion, maybe, about whether she was being asked if she's running for re-election or if she's retiring, like, exiting the Senate today or something. That, mm. If I'm being charitable, that mm. was the confusion there. Obviously, her difficulty in communicating her thinking at her advanced age is something that has been pointed out and I think is perfectly fair to point out. Right. No disrespect to her. Right. But look, we are governed by very elderly people. And this is, there's been yeah. good reporting on whether she is, again, at her advanced age, clued in enough yeah. to the goings-on. And like you're not, you know, I'm sorry, you're not like some anti elderly person. Yeah, because it's not all elderly people. Yeah. It's not every person who's 70 or 80 in Congress who's behaving this way. The San Francisco Chronicle, to your point, reported, I think, in the first part of last year, uh, quote, the lawmaker said they had to reintroduce, reintroduce themselves to Feinstein multiple times during an interaction that lasted several hours. Um, rather than delve into policy, Feinstein, then 88, repeated the same small talk questions, like asking the lawmaker what mattered to voters in their district. The member of Congress said, it's the anonymous report, with no apparent recognition that the two had already had a similar conversation. So these are her colleagues that, off the record, are, are, are anonymously 
reporting that there have these issues have been ongoing for a long time. At one point, there was a doctor who was reported to have had some concerns about some of the medication she was taking that was prescribed for things that have to do with your kind of mental acuity, and on and on and on. Yeah. Well, her retirement will open up a fierce uh, fight for the California open Senate seat. Representative Rokana is uh, potentially in the mix. Um, I know some other people are weighing that as well. I think they talked about Barbara Lee. Yeah. They've talked about um, Katie, Katie Porter, Porter is, has got, said she's going to right, be running. And gotten a lot of trouble from Democrats who said it was premature for her to announce her intention to run before Dianne Feinstein had affirmed Adam Schiff, yeah. her intention not to run. I, that all seems like an effort to clear the field for someone other than Katie Porter, since it, it seems obvious that Katie Porter had some insight into the fact that Dianne Feinstein wasn't going to be running again. Mm -hmm. But it, it's shaping up to be a very interesting race, because again, this is one of those solidly blue districts where ostensibly you would expect there to be more tolerance for a more left version of politics. The state, the, the district being the whole state. Yeah, sorry, yeah. the sorry, the state. The, it, biggest and, district there is, the district there is. <laughs> California. This is a this is a more an area where you would expect there to be more tolerance mm -hmm. for lefty politics. However, what we've seen in California repeatedly, especially with a statewide Medicare for All proposal that was tanked by a Democratic legislature, that oftentimes are in the situation where Democrats like to say therefore X, Y, and Z when there's no chance of it passing. When they do have majorities, they suddenly come with all these excuses mm -hmm. for why things can't happen. And I wonder how that's going to bear out in this race. Are people going to try to run to each other's left? And if they do, what's going to happen when the winner is actually faced with the proposition of enacting some of the policies that they've run on? You had a favorite clip of the senator that you wanted to play, Yeah, so as we, <laughs> as we kind of sunset the, the age of Dianne Feinstein, I think it's worth noting that the, the, the liberal media has been defending her despite this obvious evidence of her both taking political positions that aren't great and seeming to be in some kind of a cognitive decline. She was addressed by climate activist children, like 12-year-olds mm. in her office, who very politely and sweetly asked her what she was going to do about climate uh, legislation. This was her uh, response. We are trying to ask you to vote yes on the Green New Deal. Okay, I'll tell you what. We have our own Green New Deal. Some scientists have said that we have 12 years to turn this around. Well, it's not going to get turned around in 10 years. What we can do is put Senator, if this doesn't get turned around in 10 years, you're looking at the faces of the people who are going to be living with these consequences. The government is supposed to be for the people and by the people and all You know what's interesting about this group is I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. There's a new Iron Lady in town, folks. Honestly, my my sympathies are pulled in multiple directions watching this because I, I do hate the tactic of using kids for emotional blackmail. Like they don't know anything about anything, so I her telling them to go f themselves is actually kind of admirable to me. But I don't, in general, like political figures. Period, especially ones being. You know, saying no, I know better than you, my constituents. So, uh, so truly, I am, I well, look, am, I am on the fence you're, on this you're, one. Caitlin can, can the kids and Diane Feinstein <laughs> both lose? <laughs> Caitlin kind of agrees with you here because she in the Atlantic. So this is what I mean about the liberal institutions yeah. backing up. Feinstein. I love Caitlin Flanagan. Caitlin Flanagan wrote in the Atlantic. This is how she described that exchange. 
a group of jackbooted tots. Yes. And a grieved yes. teenager showed up at the local office of Diane Feinstein, 85 years old, holding with the intention of teaching her about climate change and demanding that she vote for the Green New Deal. So the take here was like, how dare these children, same as Diane Feinstein's, how dare these children presume to know more than this great lady who's been doing this for so long? That was Diane Feinstein at her most based. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that. Not something you'd say about her uh, very often. Jackbooted tots. 12 year olds are now. Fatigue wearing army army kids. Oh man, well her her retirement will bring down the uh, the we talk, the the median age of our senators. I mean, we talk this look this is an issue how how over the average age of the member of a member of Congress has gone so far up since yeah. the founding, since the last over the last fifty years, and um, it is a real look. It's it's an issue when the people in government don't have. The wherewithal to address, you know, we're, we're talking about these very important tech issues a lot, social media issues uh, of, of great concern, yeah. and they just and they do not have a grasp whatsoever. It comes out so clearly in mm -hmm. these hearings. It's embarrassing mm -hmm. listening to them ask questions about it. Um, do, I, I saw a. Did you see the New York Times op-ed about? Maybe we can put that on screen if, if if you guys are listening and can find it. The the Japanese economist who was saying it, it was. A, did you see this? It was a crazy right like kind of profile of this Japanese economist who has provocatively asked, should all the old people in Japan commit seppuku? Oh, because they're, I think I, saw, I heard about this a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, it was crazy, but it was just like, it, it got like a polite reception in the New York, New York Times, it's like just asking questions. Um, I, I think, call me a, a moderate squish, if you will, <laughs> I think there is a middle ground, perhaps, that we, between that we... giving old people total control of our government <laughs> And systematically, ritualistically forcing doing, them to doing the to, giver, realizing that the, the, the novel, the giver, is actually a dystopian tale yeah. and not something that we should model our society yeah. after. So, again, I, I know I'm just a squishy centrist, but maybe a middle ground between total government yeah. by gerontocracy and uh, and the sword in the gut thing. I, I think we can agree on that one, Robbie. All right, all right. Some hot takes for you today. More rising right after this. The World Health Organization abandoned plans for the second phase of its investigation into the origins of COVID-19, citing challenges over attempts to conduct crucial studies in China, according to Nature.com. Researchers say they are disappointed that the investigation is not moving forward, but without access to China, there is little that the World Health Organization can do to progress these studies, according to virologist Angela Rasmussen. Meanwhile, House Republicans are launching their investigation into the origins of COVID-19 by requesting documents and testimony for current and former Biden administration officials. Republican chairman of the House Oversight Committee and the Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic sent Dr. Anthony Fauci a letter regarding the idea that the coronavirus leaked accidentally from a Chinese lab, also known as the lab leak origin theory. According to ABC News, Representative Brad Winstrup, chair of the virus subcommittee, said in a statement, quote, this investigation must begin with where and how this virus came about so that we can attempt to predict, prepare, or prevent it from happening again. Chairman of the Oversight Committee James Comer said Republicans will follow the facts and hold U.S. government officials that took part in any sort of cover-up accountable. So I think it's very regrettable and unfortunate that this investigation by the WHO can't be completed. I, I totally 
accept what they're saying, that there is no way to do this investigation without greater Chinese participation. Um, here's a question. Mm. If China is not going to participate in this investigation, if they didn't know, we're a Sorry, you don't get to ask us questions about this. Why is it even a why is it just a recommendation from our own government that maybe Eagle Health Alliance not get any more grants to do research in Wuhan? Maybe if they're not going to play ball with this investigation, we just say, "Sorry, no more dollars to do research in an un in a in a conditions in a Chinese lab we can't vet." That, that should go fair. that should go both ways, I would think. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, unless I can't imagine there would be some circumstance that makes it so that the only way research that is necessary for the public interest that is is completed is if it's happening in this one lab in China or a series of labs in China. So I, I think I think that seems very reasonable. And I also take the point that, yeah, if you can't conduct the investigation in China because China isn't um, supporting the investigation, fine. But the investigation into a U.S. cover-up, cover I think, is very important mm -hmm. because it seems likely that there was a point in time when Facts were known, um, where communications were being passed back and forth about the likelihood, at very least, the credibility of a lab leak theory being the origin of the virus. And a lot of people are going to want to draw inferences one way or another about what it means that we, the, the government kind of sat on that explanation for so long, that the media was so complicit in shaming anybody who wanted to investigate lab leak theory for so long. And if we don't end up getting an investigation at the root in China, ultimately all we're left is kind of the negative inferences from how people reacted to the possibility of lab leak theory being validated as a reality. Yeah. There, just, there have to be some consequences for China wanting to be, the Chinese government wanting to be a closed society and not participate in things like this. They just can't have it both ways. They can't, if they're going to make stipulations and say, no, we're not participating in this thing, we have to play a little bit hardball a little bit better, say, okay, then you don't get access to X, Y, and Z things that you want from us. Like we can't. We have to stop caving. Yeah, sure. They don't cave. I mean, they don't. They never cave. Should we? Should we spend a little bit more time asking whether or not we think there are ways to investigate? I mean, there are obviously eco health mm -hmm. staffers. There are people in China who are certainly are present. We all know that we have spy balloons going on <laughs> everywhere. And our spy balloons are a COVID <laughs> lab origin tracking. <laughs> I mean. Should we actually be so quick to accept the premise that it's impossible to investigate or origins without China's cooperation? Maybe we—I mean, maybe we shouldn't. That has the ring of truth, certainly, to me. I mean, in the past, people have been critical—some people in the scientific community and others have been critical of the WHO for being too deferential to China. Mm -hmm. I know that was a criticism lobbed at the WHO at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think— I think their stance has changed a little bit, or they, they become somewhat more vocally critical, at least in their communications. Their communications were just, it was like the Chinese Communist Party was writing them. I think that's not the case anymore. But um, yeah, hard to know. And, and then it's just always hard to know with, you know, with whoever, who are the investigators, who are the scientific people. Yeah. Do they have investments in research still being conducted? Are, are they, you know, because the, the reason, the, the issue we have with asking our own CDC or NIH to look into this stuff is that they seem very, the the ideologically in favor of more funding for exactly this kind of research. So then we worry that they're not going to, even if the conclusions were staring them in the face, they'd find ways to to avoid them and say, well, it's not clear. Well, who, who can say for sure? Or, well, this research was not great, but it's not technically, doesn't meet the technical definition of the research we think needs to be done and is still being funded, perhaps yeah. in China. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was also curious. I mean, you would think that China has 
an investment in understanding what happened here as well to prevent mm -hmm. it from happening again. They're certainly in the throes of experiencing what so the rest of the world basically experienced over the last two years now that they are opening up. And people are dying in scads, and it's a, it's a terrible situation that I, I believe nobody wants to repeat. So again, it's like, what is the hesitation to investigate the origins? Well, it seems, one, there's obviously some pretty significant implications for the lab itself, its ability to continue to do research and get more funding. There's also the question of liability. And if it really is right. just the case that people's fear of being liable for the untold numbers of deaths and economic shutdowns that resulted from this, then that's a really, it's a, it's Chinese, a tough trade-off. I mean, this is going to sound harsh, but I, I think it's absolutely true that the Chinese government would rather let another pandemic happen than take but responsibility they, if they were responsible. But also, they the can't, like, who was actually going to hold who exactly liable? Apart from maybe EcoHealth as an institute, like, as a... Right. But, you know, what are and they And they're not do? a Chinese organization. They, yeah, they're, they're not, not they're <laughs> beholden to yeah. what, what law is going to attach to who exactly that's going to make anybody in China, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. China liable. So... You know, if this really is just basically, frankly, about eco-health and people immediately involved protecting themselves, it's a real shame of our ability to prevent an outbreak like this happening again all comes down to people trying to protect themselves financially. And look, this is an argument, this is an argument for liability shields that some people make. They say, we would never would have gotten vaccines, we never would have gotten people to rush this process if they didn't have the protection of, of liability waivers. It's a little bit of a catch-22, because you can see in a situation like this, you know, would you rather know what the origin story actually was if it meant that the people who, you know, could, who admitted to wrongdoing or discovered wrongdoing weren't actually held accountable anyway? We, my position is we need to and deserve to know the truth regardless of the implications of it. We, yeah. just, I, we need to know the truth. This was a... And you know we know like we know some of the some of the scientists who are involved are are well known people. The, I mean they call her the Bat Lady, right? I, I can't mm -hmm. remember exactly what her name is, but her nickname is the Bat Lady mm -hmm. because she is known for going into caves and getting specimens and doing and is research woman on not them. Interviewed? Is she not? She's a Chinese woman. I mean she can still be interviewed. Yeah. I mean well, is she not being interviewed in China? Is she not like? We don't know. Yeah, we have a lot of we would have we should have some questions for her. There's a lot yeah. of questions to ask. Maybe the Republican House will bring her before their committee. We have to go. Maybe we need to send a we need to send a balloon. Oh Lord! That like uh, it, it has a claw come down oh, and grabs Lord. you, scoops you into the balloon, and uh, and uh, takes you back. All right. I don't know. It's a very Rick and Morty type device. Okay, are, we, are you allowed to talk here. about Rick and, Rick and Morty anymore? Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Cancel. will not be. It will not be silenced. More rising right after this. Just before news of the Ohio train derailment started penetrating mainstream media, TikToker Nick Dromboski posted this video to the platform explaining the event, which went viral. Let's watch some of that. So prior to this, the biggest spill of this chemical was in New Jersey, where one train car and about 23,000 gallons of vinyl chloride were spilled, but it didn't catch on fire. Now, this crash in Ohio has five train cars. These kinds of tanker cars can carry between 25 and 33,000 gallons. Let's call it 250 to 250,000 pounds of vinyl chloride. That's per train car, five train cars. There's maybe a million pounds of this toxic chemical spilling into the ground and also boiling off into the air. But then it caught on fire. I think this is where the reporting is really bad because no one is mentioning what the byproduct of vinyl chloride burning is. 
Of the many byproducts of burning vinyl chloride, one of them is hydrogen chloride. Hydrogen chloride is really unstable and latches onto water, like just water vapor in the atmosphere, and that turns into hydrochloric acid. So right now, government officials, officials from the railroad, both the governor of Pennsylvania and Ohio are calling burning off the million pounds of this stuff a success, but not mentioning that it means that we have hundreds of thousands of pounds of acid in the air, potentially. Reporting from the Lever News revealed the weakening of the high hazard flammable train classification in efforts to kill brake safety rules. Since the Pennsylvania governor, Josh Shapiro, says he has requested that President Biden and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, quote, re-examine this effort. Here's what the White House had to say on the matter this morning. Should uh, the Obama era rail safety uh, Breaking rule, the better breaking technology rule that the last administration knocked out, should that be reinstated? We're monitoring the situation. I can tell you that the president has been briefed on this uh, and uh, just don't want to get ahead of what's currently happening on the ground uh, or, you know, the reports that we're hearing. But again, I just laid out what, what, uh, what the EPA has been doing for about a week. They've been on the ground testing the air quality. Uh, they've been talking to locals uh, on the ground, trying to meet uh, their needs at the moment. I just don't want to get ahead of any specifics here because, again, we're monitoring closely. Entrepreneur and science communicator Nick Trombosky and reporter at The Lever, Rebecca Burns, are both here to discuss. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Hi, thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for joining us. Um, Nick, uh, I'll start with you. You know, the administration, the government seems to be taking the attitude that they have the situation under control, uh, you know, while people watch this enormous poisonous cloud uh, for, you know, for however long that was going on. Um, you talked about in your video, uh, you know, the fear potentially that they're not, the APA, for instance, might not be checking for the right um, hazards given how the, the, the chemicals can combine and form a different chemical that might not be, you know, what they're testing for. People in the area have talked about, you know, having fish showing up in the water dead, even at a distance from, from the site. Um, what, what are you, you know, warning viewers to be on the lookout for? Well, first, I just want to say that the, the video that you guys played is over a week old. So most of that information is outdated or, or not applicable anymore. At this point, it seems that the main concern is that there was also a major oil spill, and that wasn't disclosed in any of the early stuff. Uh, it, they spilled at least two tank cars uh, which could be up to 60,000 gallons of, of petroleum oil. So do you mean to say that the concerns about the spilled chemicals are no longer a concern, or it's just an additional concern? It's different chemicals. Okay. I'm sorry, it's, it's different chemicals. So uh, initially, the, the big concern that they were talking about was vinyl chloride, because that was kind of the first stage of an emergency, because that vinyl chloride was possibly going to turn into five very large bombs. So that was why there was that original explosion. Um, but at this point, most of the byproducts from that should have been dissipated in the atmosphere or possibly settled to the ground in the form of particulates. And that's why soil testing is important, which we've seen none of. And what are the potential consequences of those particles being either in the air or in the soil in terms of human health affecting the water table and the like? Well, one of the big things that we need to push on is in these kinds of disasters, it's very rare for us to get a, a, a thorough accounting of what chemicals are involved. And early on, we really didn't. And when they made their original projections for this explosion, 
people should be asking where are all these chemicals actually accounted for because all they were talking about originally was the vinyl chloride and um, the butyl acrylate. Mm. Rebecca, I want to ask you a little bit more about the political angle of this. The Lever has done such good comprehensive reporting about all of the kind of regulatory choices that led to this moment, including the choice not to require the newer brake system in all of these cars, and of course the ongoing labor discussions we've been having um, ever since uh, the Biden administration stopped the rail strike at the end of last year about whether or not the staffing issues in the precision railroad scheduling choices uh, also led to this, uh, this, this crisis. Tell us a little bit more about what the government could have done and what Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg's transportation secretary should or could be doing in this moment. Right. Thanks for that. Um, so let me start by saying that, you know, the information that was shared initially by Nick via TikTok and that we're finally learning more than a week out uh, now that Norfolk Southern has responded uh, by providing the EPA with a specific list of which chemicals were in which cars. That's all information that should um, have been provided to state emergency planning officials and, and first responders um, and uh, would have been required to be provided ahead of time um, had the rulemaking under the Obama administration not restricted uh, the definition of what's known as a high hazard flammable train. Uh, um, so uh. <clears throat> we've all seen the photos of, you know, a hundred foot flames rising um, from the train uh, and and the um, uh, the sort of ominous plumes following the the controlled release. Um, despite what that may look like, this train we learned was was not classified under a high hazard uh, as a high hazard flammable train um, because of pressure from uh, the nation's main chemical lobby during rulemaking on this issue in 2015. Um, so, so one issue certainly that um, could be revisited is just which types of trains and specifically which types of hazardous materials um, are required to take additional safety measures, including um, uh, clearing route planning and providing additional notification to state emergency commissions, um, stricter speed requirements, newer, safer tank cars. So that's one issue that, um, from what we understand, nothing is stopping uh, the Biden administration and Transport Secretary Pete Buttigieg from renewing. So the other issue is this one of the braking systems. Um, and this is something that was also raised to us by some of the rail union groups. Um, and what's important to understand is that most of the nation's freight trains are operating with a braking system that was designed during the Civil War era. Mm -hmm. So compressed mm -hmm. air brakes um, that stop trains one by one. Now, the railroads themselves, and this is what rail unions pointed us to, were testing newer electronically controlled braking systems in the earlier in the early 2000s. Um, Norfolk Southern itself, we found a document where in 2007, in one of its newsletters, it was sort of boasting to investors that it had made history by outfitting one of its trains with these uh, new electronically controlled braking systems um, that radically improved stopping time. So what happened after, again, railroads themselves um, were testing these braking systems, you know, acknowledging the safety benefits, rail unions were very supportive of this, again, because of the improved safety benefits. As soon as regulators moved to make this step mandatory um, to, up, you know, spend the money to upgrade trains, 
specifically caz carrying hazardous materials with, with newer brakes, um, that's when we saw uh, the railroads and their chief lobbying group really push back. And from what we understand, the specific concern um, uh, was that investors were concerned about uh, sort of the, the short-term impact of these capital expenses. So long-term, you know, initially the railroads thought that this would save them money. Um, it requires fewer inspections, fewer stops. Um, but when there was pushback from investors on sort of the um, short-term uh, short losses or short-term cuts into profits, um, the railroads pushed back, um, weakened rulemaking under the Obama administration, and then repealed the breaking requirement entirely under the Trump administration. That's such an interesting perspective because so much of the discussion about regulations versus the industry, it kind of acts as though, you know, uh, there, there are some people uh, who are more politically on, on the right, I would say, more libertarian leading that say, let the corporations do what they're going to do. They know how to maximize profit. They know how to maximize efficiency, et cetera. But what the, the narrative that you just laid out is that the railroad experts basically were kind of positive about the new brake system, thought it would create new efficiencies and safety, but it was the investors and the company, the money men, at basically at the end of the day, that weren't willing to lay out the short-term expenditures. I think I saw the lever reported that it would cost about half a billion dollars to implement, which sounds like a lot of money. But of course, back in, I think, 2017, when this was occurring, the profits of these, of North, of North, uh, sorry, Norfolk Railroad in particular was something like $10.5 billion. So completely doable, but the question is, are we willing to have the short-term economic outlay for a long-term benefit? And so often for investors, the answer to that is absolutely not. It's about short-term profit, which of course isn't inert to the benefit of the company or to the American people. Uh, I want to come back to you, uh, though, Nick, for a while, because I mean, what is so galling and terrifying to people about this is the fact that these are chemicals with big, scary, long names. And we are being told, frankly, uh, the, the, the residents of the affected area were told, we didn't test for X and Y chemicals, so you can go back to your homes. And so many people remember, frankly, other incidents like after 9-11, when people were told, first responders were told that the air quality was safe, they could go down and, and you know, uh, respond to the needs at, at ground zero without necessarily being concerned about air quality and without having the preventative gear that might have been useful. And then years later, so many people succumb to respiratory illnesses or death as a consequence. So what do you say to people who, you, you know, don't want to have be fear-mongered to, but also want to be cautious about what they should do next in the affected area? I think it's really tough, and it was really unique watching the first couple of days of this because having the knowledge of what happened in Paulsboro, where there was a, a, a train derailment where they only lost one tanker, those people didn't return back to their homes after uh, the derailment for over a week. Mm. So I was expecting that with five times more potential of vinyl chloride, these people would be evacuated for at least that same amount of time. The other thing is in Paulsboro, the, they mandatory tested every single home before anyone could return. So when they announced that they'd be doing voluntary testings and that there was a wait list, but you could return now, it was very odd. But then when you saw that the, the railroad opened, reopened just hours after they released the or ended the evacuation order, people that I talked to in town said they went back to their homes. It was so bad that they had to leave, but they grabbed their pets. They grabbed stuff that they left behind before. But then trains were just going. Mm. 
And they they said right that you you know you get tested if you feel if you're not feeling well if you're dizzy if you have some some sight loss but you don't have to get tested but then it, it was almost an acknowledgement that people might be feeling those side effects which then would would undermine whether that it was safe right yeah and I think that it's important to recognize that when you when you look at these there are a lot of trends. And the one thing that you see is at the beginning, the responsible party, in this case, the railroad, really holds a lot of their info tight. So when we look at how these kind of events get handled in the aftermath and how they get bungled, a lot of it has to just stem with the information flow not coming down as fast and as clear as it should be. I'm sure that if the, the fire chief, who's the only full-time employee of the city, and the mayor, who's, who's actually a part-time employee, they hmm. care about these people. And I think if they had all of the information, I don't think that they would have let their people go back. Well, Rebecca, let's talk about that, because the profit motive seems to have been driving a lot of the bad decision-making that caused the accident. Um, we played an interview yesterday about um, someone locally who seemed to suggest that part of the strategy of managing the crash was geared toward opening the rails back up as quickly as possible, as opposed to actually managing the chemical spread and the, the crisis on the ground most effectively. And now, you know, in the, earlier in the segment, we just saw Karine Jean-Pierre kind of giving, I will say, from my perspective, a kind of sub subjectively wishy-washy answer about how we're monitoring the situation, et cetera. What we know is that, for example, Joe Biden could have used an executive, can continue to use executive authority to give the rail workers the sick days that they were requesting at the end of the last year. There was a conversation about whether or not some of the staffing issues uh, precipitated this crisis. The fact that these mile-long, two-mile-long trains are being staffed and inspected by only two-man crews. In this case, I believe there was a third person who was a trainee conductor on the train. And, and so, you know, what do you say to folks um, who perhaps are in the Democratic Party saying, hey, we're doing what we can, we're taking, you know, the decisions are being made for the best interest of the people. From your perspective, what would we be seeing if, if truly the best interest of the people were being reflected here as opposed to perhaps some political or economic interests? Right. So we saw, you know, Secretary Buttigieg, who has been uh, coming under criticism for his handling of this incident and is as far as I'm aware, didn't say anything about it until he was pushed to a week later. Um, we saw him on Twitter last night sort of list all of the things that he says he, he can't do. Um, and, um, you know, that's not a very reassuring response to say that we're continuing to monitor the situation. We're continuing to consider whether we could make this rule or that rule. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm certainly not a rail safety expert, but this specific issues that we've, we've pointed out and found were sort of scrapped uh, uh, in previous um, rulemaking processes. So again, the definition of a high hazard flammable train um, and uh, uh, upgrading braking rules, both of those are something that are, are widely supported by, by rail unions. Um, uh, and, um, you know, as far as we're aware, uh, nothing is stopping, uh, the secretary from revisiting, uh, rulemaking on, on these and other issues, um, that I will say, uh, you know, were being pointed out by, by rail workers themselves, um, before, uh, yeah. I, I think, I think I'm just really trying to drive this home because this is what I anticipate happening going forward. The reason that there was so much 
stress and politicking around the worker sick days was fundamentally because of precision railroading. The idea that the railroads didn't want to give up their ability to have these really tight schedules that got them so much profit over the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years or so. Some of the interventions that would prevent this kind of incident also implicate their ability to do precision railroading. So I wouldn't be surprised if, again, there was a lot of industry pushback against doing the exact kind of rulemaking that we all can see would have prevented this kind of incident, not because it's impossible or even politically non-expeditious, but because those same lobbying efforts that prevented it the first time around have the same incentive to do so. And I'm, I'm so grateful to you both for helping us shed light on the contours of this situation. Uh, thank you both. Thanks. Thank you. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. Well, it wasn't a very happy Valentine's Day for the hosts of The View, as they had no love for former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who announced her 2024 presidential run yesterday. Sonny Hostin called Haley a chameleon. Let's watch. But, you know, as governor, they keep on saying her defining moment uh, was signing legislation removing the Confederate flag from the state capitol. She only did that after the massacre that happened at the Emanuel Church yeah. that I actually covered and spoke to those family members. She only did that. And then let's remember that after Trump came, by 2019, she was defending the Confederate flag. She said that the yeah. Charleston church shooter had hijacked the Confederate flag. No, ma'am, the Confederate flag had always been hijacked. And that, then she said that people saw it as service, sacrifice, and heritage. I see it as heresy as a person of color in this country. And so when she wants to uh, say the right thing, I think she's very much a political grifter and a chameleon. And the bar is very low because it's on the ground. Yeah. But I no, don't it's think below the ground. It's below the ground. It's in, it's in the, I don't it's in a, see it's her a as a step up from anything. Okay, I think it was not super smart to, like, laser focused on something Nikki Haley did that was, I think it was a good thing mm -hmm. and, and did fine. It was, she waited for the right moment to do it, but it still took some political courage to do it. And that is something, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to fall all over yourself praising Nikki Haley or something. She doesn't have to be your candidate because of that, but that was a good thing and she just deserves credit for doing it. Uh, like the host of The View, I also think Nikki Haley is a little somewhat of a chameleon and has had, especially in her views of President Trump or her thinking on how fit Donald Trump is to be the president, um, she's had to, you know, that's a, a reality that a lot of Republicans who do not love Donald Trump have had to navigate because being anti-Donald Trump puts you on a very, very specific road that mm -hmm. culminates in having no future in the Republican Party and just being it's a track to MSNBC, a, baby. It's the track to MSNBC, <laughs> exactly. The road for, you know, the, then there's the roads that DeSantis-type people are on, which is no. never say anything critical of Trump, be all about what Trump has done, even though, as you can tell, as it, you know, it, it, it comes out of his being that doesn't like him sure. as a human being, but he's not going to say that. Yeah, I, I agree that it's odd to open that criticism with the good thing that she did. But I also appreciate, you know, the, she's trying to make the case that she's a grifter by contrasting 
her her alleged support of taking down the Confederate flag, the perceived understanding of why she should take down the Confederate flag, why in the wake of a racially motivated mass shooting that you don't want this symbol mm -hmm. of the Civil War she, and the losing side in the South and slavery and all of that presiding over your house of government. And so then to, then to, to try to get points for that and to have credit for that and then turn around and say that she understands that it's not really a symbol of hate, that people who adopt it as a symbol of hate are hijacking it, but that's not intrinsic to the meaning of the flag. I mean, it kind of ignores what symbolism really is. It ignores the fact that everybody puts their own projects their own meaning onto all of these symbols, but the predominant projection for most Americans, not, I don't say most Americans, but a lot of Americans onto the Confederate flag is exactly that kind of sinister racism that caused Nikki Haley to want to take it down in the wake of this racially motivated attack in the first instance. Sonny was very oddly, they're trying to, like, Sonny didn't take down the flag from anyway. It was just, right. Just Sunny talking about her own, into it is her weird. own intervention. There. I reported on it. I talked to those people. Okay. Well, Sonny, like your argument is okay. being undermined by you trying to also steal valor <laughs> off of this incident. But you, both you and yeah. Nikki Haley are trying to steal valor off of this incident. Mm. You know, I, so I, I, I frankly agree with the overarching point that Nikki Haley is a chameleon and that she is having a hard time finding her place in this Republican ecosystem. She strikes me as someone who frankly knows better, which makes it, I think, all the more disappointing. And it's part of why the view hosts are so bristled when she walks back the things that she's done that are right, or she seems to be bending principles that I think she kind of does understand mm -hmm. in order to appeal to a more Trumpist segment of the party. And it's, it's hard to watch. It's, it's easier to watch someone who seems to be genuinely craven and believe the dreck that's coming out of their mouths than someone like Nikki Haley, who seems frankly like a reasonable, normal person who's trying to make it in a, in a conservative ecosystem that's that's not, that's very divided about whether it wants to be normal Well, and or that not. is going to reject her for, uh, unless she, again, because that road is very. But they're gonna reject her either way. That's almost what makes the bending of the knee that much more depressing. Like what's the point you're gonna sell out to things that may, maybe you don't even believe in? and lose anyway? You know, is it really the case that the Republican Party is such that there's no space for someone who, you know, stands by the decision to take down a Republican flag in the wake of a racially motivated mass killing? Is that really where we are? I mean, I don't know that people who don't like her, that that's the reason they don't like her. I, I, again, I, I, she has, to the extent she has discernible policy views she should be identified with, she is very hawkish. She's very neoconservative. She, her, her views align with the version of the Republican Party in the, in the aughts. And that is not, that is clearly not popular with yeah, for, the base. For so sure. I, I, don't, I don't think, but I don't know that if people are sitting on, oh, I hated that she took down the Confederate no, flag, for, I won't vote for, for, sure, for that. I mean, maybe there are some people. Obviously, at some point in time, she felt like she needed to recharacterize her feelings about the American flag to make it palatable to somebody. So she obviously perceives that some... The Confederate flag. So, what did I say? The American flag. Sorry, the Confederate flag. She obviously believes that some quantity of Americans needed her to say something affirming about the value of the American flag despite her Confederate previous... Confederate flag. Sorry, Confederate flag, <laughs> despite her previous... I think uh, many nation. American voters need you to say something edifying oh, about no. the American flag. I mean, that's, <laughs> well, that's a whole yeah, other well, conversation. Drag that out of you, but... But, you know, I, you, you, can't, I mean, I don't, you can't brush that away. If in that interview she had just said, look, I am sensitive to the fact, 
I, you know, I'm in South Carolina. It's a state with one of the largest black populations. I understand that some Americans see this Confederate flag as simply a matter of tradition, et cetera. But many others see it as a symbol of a civil war in which more American lives were lost than any other that's, war. Isn't that, that's exactly what she said. What do you mean? Isn't that what she said? No, she said, she went on to say that it's just a symbol of, it's a, it, well, I think balance. she said, it's I think a, she was mollifying critics. I say some people just kind of associate this with, you know, pride in their state no, or. Going as far as to say that the, the real meaning of it, when she says that the people who appropriated it or whatever, who, who, who took, you know, who, who stole it to go and kill black people aren't like the true, it's not, that's not the true meaning of the flag. She's making a value judgment about whose version of the flag is more right than the other person. And she's, she's saying not, the not evil version is the right version. For, for many people in the country, the idea of taking a flag that to them represents the subjugation, enslavement of black people and using it to go and kill black people is completely consistent with the vibe of the flag. And what Nikki Haley is saying is no, 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 it is wrong to have that belief. People who actually use this flag as a symbol of hate are not respecting the real meaning of the flag and then affirming what she believes is the real meaning of the flag, which is something non-hateful. So in that subsequent statement, she is picking a side and the side is Say the, the Confederate flag is not intrinsically hateful. Now, she could have said, many minds disagree, but the reason I took it down was because there are enough people in my district that see it as a symbol of hate. It's not actually the American flag. The South lost the war. American lives, many white American lives were lost in the Civil War. This is a regressive, atavistic symbol, and it shouldn't be here anymore. If people want to privately still like the flag and use it for what they want to use it for, it's a free country. God bless. But she didn't say that. Saying something, it seems she like something splitting distinct. hairs a little bit to me. It's like me, look, I understand. Let's take the, the swastika is technically a religious Indian, symbol from India. Yep. And I could technically decorate my house with a swastika. I could find some old artifacts mm -hmm. from India and put them up and say, isn't this great? And when someone sees the swastikas in my house, I can say, no, 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 no. It's just that I like, it's just a coincidence that I've decorated so, my house with swastika. Symbols don't have any inherent meaning. It's only the meaning we ascribe to them, and you, sure. can, cha you can change or alter sure. the meaning but of a symbol. Someone, I don't think that would necessarily be a terrible project however, to try to reclaim. However, if I could just, you know, however, if I then go and put swastikas all over myself and go into a synagogue and mow down a bunch of Jewish people, and then a bunch of other swastika lovers say, oh, no, 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 she's like wrongly appropriating the swastika for that purpose. That's not really what the swastika means. Okay, they took it down. They, they took it down, they took and it I down. wish that she had kind of stood by why that decision was made instead of kind of retrofitting it to appease some other audience. Well, I think we got one more clip here to play. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg continued the discussion saying that Nikki Haley has been asleep all this time and just woke up. Let's take a look. You know, since you have been asleep all this time and you just woke up, <laughs> you're just finding out that there are things about our country that are not perfect. And for us to pretend that it is and that nothing happened is ridiculous. So you're not saying anything new. And you of all people should know better because you used to actually have some sanity and knew right from wrong. Yes, yes. And then you lost your mind and, and went in some new direction. So don't do that. Hmm. And that's kind of kind of what saying. you're saying. Yeah. That I, that's what's, I think, so dis disappointing and why there's so much energy and anger coming out of the cast of The View here at this moment. 
Because, I mean, I think some part of them wanted to believe that Nikki Haley was, like, one of the good ones, one of the better ones, at least in the Republican Party. And it's more than that. It's that you kind of want to believe that there is enough social pressure, there is enough, there are enough people in the United States who, I don't know, like, my own subject, I'm trying to get, say this about my own subjective beliefs, obviously, about the American flag, sorry, the Confederate flag coming through. But... You want to believe that Nikki Haley cares enough about the diversity of opinions in her constituency that she would be more moderate in her approach. And but she, in fact, was at one point when she took the flag down. And to now see her want to pander to a different kind of audience suggests that, at least by her estimation, the public opinion in America has shifted from that point in a rightward direction, which I think is unnerving. Because if even Nikki Haley is taking this kind of position, what does that mean? for the state of conservatism and our, what I thought were kind of broadly settled feelings about a flag from the Civil War, from the side that lost, I guess I, who were defending the right to enslave people. Right. I, I, I don't get any value out of the Confederate flag. I, right, the well, consola consolation prizes for <laughs> the losing side, who cares? But uh, it, it seemed to me more like just mollifying, or acknowledging that some people feel strongly about it and, and you know, maybe if we're being as charitable as possible, they don't mean anything ill by it. But but because most many more people feel very strongly about it and correctly identify Except it as Nikki a. Except Nikki says so we're supposed to the, ignore the fact that this mass said, shooter also appropriated the Confederate flag. She's like, don't don't pay attention to that. That's that's he's, he's understanding the Confederate wrong, th uh, flag wrong. We shouldn't read anything into. We, there's no racism as a part of the Confederate changing, flag. She's trying to change what the association of it is, which is fine because symbols are just symbols. But no, she's trying to ignore what the downplay, erase what the association with it is, because it's politically inconvenient for all of her followers who also like that same flag. That's the issue. All right. Well, we gotta leave it at that. We'll have more rising after this. A now-deleted Twitter post went viral yesterday that claimed the Epstein court docs are out. It's, 20, it's 2,024 pages. Here's a partial list of the pedos that were on that island. Again, that tweet has been deleted. Below the tweet was a list of public figures and a follow-up tweet containing a link to a 2,024 page document. But those documents are, in fact, not new. They were unsealed in 2019 from the Virginia Gaffray lawsuit against Ghislaine Maxwell. However, the Daily Mail has reported that the last batch of documents are expected to be made public in the coming months. The material is expected to contain the names of associates, victims, and employees connected to Epstein. Now, it is unclear if some public figures associated with Epstein, including Bill Gates, Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, are named in the documents, but Prince Andrew and attorney Alan Dershowitz are understood to be mentioned in the material. Uh, and you might recall that um, Alan Dershowitz has it was the attorney uh, who represented Epstein a long time ago was accused of uh, having some illicit involvement in the bad things going on uh, with respect to I believe Virginia Gaffray. Uh, we questioned him pretty harshly on the show uh, a couple months ago. Uh, not you, it was mm -hmm. me and uh, Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky. Subsequently, um, the, the person who accused him has come out and said that she thinks she misremembered and that he was not actually involved. Um, so I, I think that's always important yeah, sure, to disclose. Yeah, sure, it's important to note. You know, what to you then would be the impact or relevance 
of some of these names of people that are already associated with Epstein appearing right. on this to-be-released document. Right. So I don't know that there will actually be a lot new here. Now, there might be people beyond these people who are mentioned who I think had to consent to being named, or maybe they had no, no choice in it. Mm. So we might get some, some new names. I mean, people always talk, what's the Epstein client list? Why, you know, why don't we know everything the government knows? Uh, this process does take time, but it, it sounds like we're going to get uh, more documents, maybe more, uh, more evidence or more dates for how long some of the prominent um, individuals were involved with him. You know, we've been talking a lot lately about Bill Gates and his involvement, for instance, with Epstein, that sounds like, you know, and he's kind of denied, he said, well, they had dinner and then they stopped having dinner. But he was still, according to reporting in the New York Times, that he was still meeting with Epstein after, after the initial conviction, when, when Epstein mm -hmm. was convicted of sexual misconduct, he served, I think, house arrest or something like that, and then is, and then, which was unbelievably lenient, but then beyond that, is still able to have access to powerful, famous, wealthy, elite people. That's the, the, the extremely concerning part of this entire story. Is the idea just that we know more names, in which case names that are already associated with Epstein Mm -hmm. There's, it's like, it's, it's a wash. We already associate them with Epstein. Or is it the idea that these lists or this document will include more details about how they were involved with Epstein, what they were accused of doing? Because, I mean, the implication that there are also victims on this list suggests opportunities for more details to come out about what actually transpired. Right. Yeah, we're going to have to wait to see. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, uh, I'm not quite clear. And, and now we, we should be, again, careful because... Dershowitz's name is in there, too, and he has vehemently denied having anything to do with the sexual misconduct accusations, and, and now it, it is not facing an accusation. The person who accused him has recanted, so I don't know if there will be more of that kind of thing yeah. going on. I mean, the implications for some public figures who are very much still in the political mix, people like Bill Gates and people like Bill Clinton, you know, even Hillary Clinton never fails to hint periodically that she could potentially run for office again. <laughs> you know, it does seem to have higher stakes for those folks. The than once others. and future candidate. Yeah, I mean, you know, you imagine her running again. You think? Look, there, you think she? There has been she, some I know buzz she wants about twenty twenty four. I mean, I think that honestly, Hillary resents the idea that. I mean, I think she probably thought that twenty sixteen was her last shot for her age. And then to see so many older people continue to run for office after her. Wait, I thought I had to retire. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. I can appreciate I mean, she's younger than Biden. She's younger mm -hmm. than Bernie, I believe. So I, I can understand her frustration on a human level. On a political level, though, absolutely not, particularly if she's also kind of continuing to have to field concerns about her husband's behavior, which I don't think is fair but is the reality of the political world that we're in. Man, we could be past that cycle by the time 2028. You know, Bill Clinton in good standing in you know, the 90s and then kind of exits the scene. Then, then Me Too stuff comes up. We have a reckoning with the bad behavior of certain male political figures. He gets, that gets brought up again. Now that's like been, <laughs> been addressed. Then it goes back into we're done talking about it. Hillary Clinton r runs again. It's, it, it's, a, it's a timeline that uh, makes all the sense in the world to me. In 2016, <laughs> some people argued that she would have fared better if she had kind of run against her husband in some ways, mm -hmm. you know, said that he was wrong. Really, like that, that basically that her positioning as a, a feminist icon 
was sullied in part by her choice to stand by her husband. Now, I think that the world is more complicated than that, and I'm not expecting her to um, get a divorce or blow up her marriage because of what the public thinks. At the same time, I do think that choosing to paint yourself as mm -hmm. kind of this, uh, you know, women's rights icon is complicated by some of the things that he, she said at the time about um, Monica Lewinsky that weren't exactly feminist and a kind of a failure to reckon with what it meant for her husband well, see, and the power that he held at the time to be in that really, really well, mismatched relationship. I expect that she thinks, or she, she thought, staying with Bill was good political, a good political strategy. If she thought that divorcing him was her path to the White House, I could imagine her taking that path. I think that's, I think that's going to be right. She very much wanted to be president. There is a, um, one of my favorite podcasts, it's called The West Wing Thing, and they watch every episode and kind of skewer the neoliberal politics mm -hmm. thereof. And they did a series of special episodes about um, some of those master classes, including Hillary Clinton's master class. And so I watched the entirety of it, and there was this very interesting way that she dances around some of those inconvenient moments in her past and also surrounds herself with a young woman like Huma Abedin, mm -hmm. again, who has also been slighted in those kinds mm -hmm. of ways to like, I don't know, like form like a, like a, like a barrier wall of like wronged women, you know? And I, like, obviously I empathize on some level. Like it's not Hillary Clinton's fault that Bill Clinton did what he did. It's mm -hmm. not um, Huma Abedin's fault that Anthony, she's married to Anthony Weaver. These men are ruining lives, <laughs> I'm ruining political careers, et cetera. But it also is such an odd thing to lean so hard into the yes queen woman of it all when you don't acknowledge the fact that mm -hmm. you stay with these people and that you have said disparaging things about did, the people. Did, did Huma Abedin and Anthony Weiner, they did, did yeah, I think they, they divorced, right? They, they were back and forth. I mean, they had a, child, a young child mm -hmm. together. I think they were back and forth and back and forth for a little bit of a while. But you know, you're, yeah, they're all, divorced. They were all presented with these like, scenes of them at the first initial press conference where the women mm -hmm. have to stand there kind of hangdog and yeah. supportive. Um, and it's, it's a difficult thing to reconcile. So that's a bit of a frolicking detour from the, the Jeffrey Epstein documents and, and what, you know, whether or not they're going to come out and what they, what, what, what they, they are coming out. We'll have to wait to see what is novel about them. Although that, again, we, this, this leading with the story here, that tweet promising, here it is, yeah. a bunch of uns, that was old material. So I think people, some people on social media got their hopes up about that, but that was just It's weird material. hopes, it's a weird thing to be well, I mean, <laughs> hoping and doing about. Um, people want yeah. justice for victims of sexual misconduct, Brianna. And to well, find out that <laughs> all political figures everywhere are culpable and involved in just this utterly hideous Yeah, that's the thing, crime. I mean, it's also odd politically because there is a way it's not that really a right left thing. That's it's, what I was going to yeah. say. Like so, so many obviously conservatives have really taken up this idea of it's an elites versus being on a hunt for pedophiles and finding them everywhere in pizza shops, drag shows, etc. Mm -hmm. Alleged, you know, obviously I don't mean that they're actually being found there. Right. At the same time that you know. At the same time, there was an Donald island. Donald Trump was standing there with his arm at around. At the same time, there was an Epstein. island with a very wealthy man who had who could get Bill Clinton and Donald Trump and Bill Gates on the phone in an instant. Um, yeah, it's a big engaged club. In You're not in it. <laughs> pedophilia. <laughs> okay, tomorrow on Rising, we'll be right back here to bring you updates on all the biggest stories of the week. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.